So we are in Luke 16, an interesting passage to say the least. One of my favorites, perhaps because it's interesting, but you know that the, the text here goes back, it's connected, goes back to chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15 where um, it says all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to near to Jesus to hear him preach. And he started preaching on that which is lost. He talk, talked about a lost sheep and, and a shepherd going out leaving 99 to find that one lost sheep. And there's great rejoicing when he found the one lost sheep. Speaking of a lost person, the Pharisees hated that Jesus would give uh, time and, and credence at all to people that were poor, to people that were, uh, that were not wealthy and of high standing. Uh, and yet Jesus seemed to seek out those who were uh, the lowlifes of society, lowlife in the, in the minds of the Pharisees, sinners they called them, prostitutes, tax collectors. Jesus saw these as a sheep who had, which had strayed, and he went and got them. He likens them to a, a lost coin in the next parable in chapter 15, a coin that's lost, that's found, and there's great rejoicing. And Jesus says there's great rejoicing when one lost sinner comes to faith. And he gives the parable of, of the prodigal son and the, the stiff-necked son. And that stiff-necked son at the end of chapter 15 is that son that, that uh, although was always with his father, was always against his father, was always with his father, only like the Pharisees are with God. Pharisees being religionists, people who are full of religion, people who are full of good works and doing things to try to work their way into heaven. That's what the Pharisees were. And Jesus says, look, the man that came to me, that prodigal that left and repented and came back, he was so horrible, but he was so repentant. Jesus accepted him, brought him back, and there was great rejoicing. The other one, I've never done anything wrong. Look at what I do. I keep all the laws. Yet he fit the, the mold of the Pharisees, those who think they're righteous but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. They look like a, a pretty and beautiful sepulcher. A beautiful tomb on the outside. Inside, it's full of bones of the dead. And he speaks in chapter 16. It's all in the same context of a man who was a, a, a bad money manager to his boss. He spent his boss's money frivolously, cheated him. But he made it right by going back to the people that owed his boss money and gave them a break on, their, on what they owed. And in the process of being fired by his boss, he made friends with his boss's debtors. And Jesus said, note, do likewise. Use your money. Use whatever's given to you on earth to make friends in eternity. How do you do that? Invest your money in the church of Jesus Christ. Invest your time in the people who are lost. Invest your ministry to God's people. There's an investment to be made so that when we die, those people are waiting for us on the other side to welcome us into eternal dwellings. That's Jesus' words. The Pharisees, however, didn't like much what Jesus was saying because we see in, in 6.14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. See, when you're lovers of money, you're not going to like being told to part with your money, to invest your money in eternity. Most lovers of money want to invest their money in the world and make more money and more money and more money. Yet Jesus, back in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, says, blessed are the poor. And says, woe to you who are rich now. The poor are the blessed in many cases, and the rich are the cursed, although the world might not see them that way. And this theme is followed throughout the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. In chapter 12, you've got this rich man who says, ah, I need more room, I'm going to destroy all my barns, I'm going to build bigger barns, put all my stuff in there, and I'm going to eat, drink, be merry. Jesus said, you fool. 
Tonight you die. And then who will enjoy what you've put up, what you've laid up for yourself on earth? Later on when he tells that story, the first part of chapter 16, it's that man should have said, I'm going to tear all my old barns down. I'm going to fill them with the new stuff. I've got more stuff than ever. And I'm going to invest in helping the people of God. I'm going to use my wealth to the glory of God, not so that I can eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus wouldn't have called him a fool then. But isn't that what we struggle with today? We want to stockpile as much money as quickly as we can so that we can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry, and just coast on into our death whenever that might be. Even Christians. Jesus' words are to recalibrate us, if you will. They're to bring us back down to earth. Here's what it means. And so when he gets into this parable, which may not even be a parable, this story of a rich man and this man named Lazarus, we see the proper uh, use of money from chapter 16, verse 9, using it for eternal investments to the abuse of money that we see in this story. This rich man in verse 19 He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. That means he did it all the time. Purple is the color of majesty. It's the color of royalty. To get it, you have to invest and and spend a lot of money in a a muscle, a a clam of sorts. Very expensive, very rare to to make this ink, this ointment to dye your clothing. In fact, we know a woman in the Bible who, who this was her job. Her name was Lydia. Thank you. Very good. Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She dyed this clothing, and it was the the clothing for the nobility, for the kings, and for those who could afford it, the wealthy. This guy dressed in it every day. Now, I shop at Joseph A. Bank would be the the highest, or men's warehouse would be the most expensive clothes I know. I see a pair of pants that's $100, and I go, what? Some of you are much better dressers, and you know that that, that's a really good deal, and that's what you get when you buy polyester. You you get get a $100 pair of pants. So I don't know, I'm ignorant to what the brand names are, so I would love to say this is like someone who dresses in Gucci, but I don't think Gucci makes clothing, I think it's more purses. But for those of you hoity-toities out there, it's the most expensive clothing you can buy, and this guy wears it, sleeps in it, never gets rid of it. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. These would have come from Egypt. You know the kind. People go around. They always look perfect. They want you to notice them. The lady that used to come to the church, and she was a, <laughs> she always made me paranoid. I liked her. She's a nice lady and all, but she would always come up, hey, good morning, how you doing? And she would kind of give me the look up and down. And I know she was always going, up Walmart, JCPenney. Uh, and I even told her one time, I said, I know what you're thinking. I said, no, that's not what I'm thinking. I said, well, you're not checking me out. I know that, but you're just seeing how bad my clothing is. People that dress well notice how how bad the best the rest of us dress, no doubt. So you understand this. This man is, the, is being depicted as the wealthiest of the wealthy. This is how he dresses, probably sleeps in it. And he is joyously living in splendor every day. Splendor, joyously living. The antithesis of it in verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means helped by God. Helped by God. So you'll see the irony in this man named Lazarus. It's the only time in a parable that Jesus gives where the, there's a name given to one of the people, which has led some to say, well, this isn't a parable at all. It might be a real story, and it might be. But there's no hard and fast rule that says you can't name someone in a parable. Lazarus is a very common name. And he's not to be confused with Lazarus of Bethany that we read about in John 11, who died, whom Jesus raised to life. There's many people that name this is not his death and his resurrection. Just a, just a man, a random man, a poor man named Lazarus. And he 
stands opposite of this rich man. A poor man named Lazarus, a guy named Helped by God, was laid at his gate. Really, the better translation from the Greek text is, was cast. Someone each day cast this man at the gate of the rich man, who's never named. It's a man that he was covered with sores. His clothing has to be horrible. He has to, to reek. He's not bathing. He's oozing sores. And he's hungry. He's longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. By the way, he's not at the table. The rich man doesn't have Lazarus around his table. He's at the gate. He is a part of the landscape that the man, the rich man sees every day when he comes to his home. Walks through the gate. There's, a, there's this poor man who's been cast there. Someone has tossed him there, perhaps kind of rolled him out of the car. There's no cars back then, so rolled him off the camel or something. Maybe the rich guy can help you. We can't. We don't know what to do with you. So he's at the gate. He's not under the man's table. So don't picture him that way. All it says is all he would, he would love to just simply be fed with crumbs, whatever you have left over that's falling from your table. What are the rules we have about food that falls from our tables? Don't pick that up. I mean, where's your feet been? Your feet walking around there. Do you think the floors back then were clean? Do you think they were tile or hardwood? It falls off into wherever everything else has been falling. This is what he longs for. He's kind of like the, the prodigal son who sees pig food and says, that looks good. He was so hungry, completely opposite from the guy who dresses habitually in purple and fine linen. Here's Lazarus, covered with sores. Note that, covered with sores. And it says at the latter part of verse 21, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. You ever had a dog do that? You ever have a scab and your dog, you find your dog, what are you doing? I, I did, I had a dog that would do that. That's disgusting. But dogs do that. Now if he's at the gate and he's not at the man's table, then it's not the man's personal, perhaps, pet dogs. These would be mongrels. These would be wild dogs who smell blood, who are licking this man's sore. Can you find a worse picture of a human being? And his name, of all things, is God helps, helped by God, Lazarus. But Jesus depicts this scene so that the Pharisees can be convicted again. Now, mind you, the Pharisees would see this rich man. That's, hey, he's one of us. Habitually dressed in purple, has everything, joyously living in splendor every day. That's us. That's a picture of a man then and now that people would say, God must really love him. My mom likes to wear gaudy jewelry. It's all fake. She knows it. She doesn't care. I mean, she's got some diamonds, but uh, she likes to wear big rings, and she's got this jewelry set and everything. And, and I've always noticed that men will come up, or even women, will say, and say, wow, your husband must really love you. She goes, oh, it's just all fake. You know, she's got a big old red, looks like a ruby or something, you know. And it's a cubic zirconian, you know, of a diamond. No, she's got some diamonds. But your, your husband must really love you. That's the sign of a woman that, whose husband really loves her. That's the sign of a very shallow woman. Not my mom. My mom notwithstanding. She's listening right now, no doubt. But, but if that's what you have to do to, to try to show that you're loved by your husband or loved by God, it's pretty shallow, don't you think? I mean, they're the, the most loved women, I think, usually have a little piece of rope wrapped around their a little, little kite string around their, their finger because they couldn't afford, a uh, husband couldn't afford something, uh, couldn't afford a ring, you know, like Count of Monte Cristo, right? Remember that? Yeah. Well, they got one laugh anyway. 
But the Pharisees, again, would say that guy is loved by God and the poor guy is hated by God. That's the way all Jews would think then and even now. We would see a poor person and say, what did they do? What must these people have done for God to have, have, have deprived them of health? And they're over there being, their sores are being licked by these wild dogs. What kind of a person must you be? What did you do? Please don't fall into that category, folks. Don't think that what's going on in the outside of a person is God's blessing or curse. It's not. In fact, we'll see as this story unfolds, the tables turn real quick. And we know that God is with one and not the other, and it's not the ones you would think. And so God, so the Pharisees, no doubt, would be saying, yep, that's us, the first one, and that other guy, he's just cursed. So without any embellishment, verse 22, uh, the poor man died. Poor man died. Poor people, when they die, or typically their funerals were non-existent. You couldn't afford. Uh, to, in fact, back then, you would hire at least, even the poor would hire at least two professional mourners. A professional mourner. People that can really ham it up. You know, dramatic people. People that, that can really make it look like they're sad when in fact they're not. Even the poor would do that. This guy wouldn't be able to. He was cast at the gate of a rich man. And a poor person's body was typically, almost always, thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. The Kidron Valley today in Jerusalem. It was where the the, the the fires burned, it was a garbage dump. It's where bodies were thrown for people who could not afford a burial. Jesus, had he not been buried by Joseph of Arimathea, people who were crucified were removed from the crosses and thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, where their bodies would rot and be burned. So for his funeral, nothing, no one would expect this. And, and that would have happened to his body, no doubt. But notice what happens to the man, aside from his body. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Isn't that beautiful? Bosom is not a word we normally use today. It means a side. It's carried to Abraham's side, carried to Abraham's arms. Back then, the, the, the thought of heaven, the afterlife, included Abraham. He was the progenitor of the Hebrew people. He was the one that had the promises of God. He is the one that showed faith, that God saved. That's how you're saved in the Old Testament, by believing God. God told Abraham, hey, even though you got a 90-year-old wife and you're 100 years old, look up at the stars. Can you count them? That's how many kids you're going to have. And Abraham said, I believe you, Lord. And God counted that, credited that to him as righteousness. He believed God. He simply believed God. And his wife, 90 years old, had a baby. Isaac, who had Jacob, who made the Hebrew people, 12 tribes from them. What Abraham believed came to pass. So Abraham was this heavy-hitting, great patriarch, and he's the one in heaven. So heaven is depicted as Abraham. This man, after his body died and is being burned in the valley of Hinnom, his soul is carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Ain't that just beautiful? You see, this is what happens. When a person dies... My cousin actually heard this at a funeral I did for my aunt recently. And he was, he was blown away by it. He loved it. It, it changed him, actually. And because I, my, my aunt died. She was weeding her flower bed. She was in her 80s. And she apparently had a heart attack and just keeled over and died. And it was a couple of hours, I think, before she was found. And so the ants and the bugs had crawled upon her. And she didn't, she didn't look like a person who just died in her home, per se. And so, you know, at the funeral, I just said what I always say. It didn't matter. That's just a shell. This body is just, just a shell, an encasing. 
of who we are. The moment we go, it doesn't matter what happens to the body. They can chop our body into pieces. They can drag it on the back of a car. They can completely mutilate our bodies. We don't feel it. It means nothing. Nothing is happening. When I said that in the funeral, he said, I, I, he said, I was set free. He said, because I've had friends and, and that, that died horribly, and, and I wondered how, what it must be. We look at people, the dead body, and we go, poor thing. Gosh, it was so horrible. They're not there. They don't feel it. They're not lying there deceased, going, man, this really stinks. I'm in a lot of pain after I died. However, that's not what's happening. And this passage furthers that truth. His body, wherever it was, burning in the valley of Hinnom, perhaps that day, who he was, was taken by angels. And wherever Abraham is, and however long it takes to get from point A to point B, where Abraham is, that's where this rich man, or this uh, poor man went, Lazarus. It's just beautiful imagery. Does this teach that when we die, angels carry us away? I don't see it anywhere else in the scripture, but Jesus tells us this. Maybe that's exactly what happens. But I will tell you this. When you close your eyes in death, you're going to open them someplace else. One of two places. Only one of two places. We can see in this overview here, if I just overview it, I would say there's going to be one of two places you're going to go when you die, and we see that here. He's carried away and wakes up in the arms of Abraham, where he had normally been cast at this gate outdoors with dogs licking his sores. Now he finds himself in heaven in the presence of God, being held by Abraham, having been delivered there by angels. Note that the latter part of verse 22, and the rich man also died and was buried. Not the same visual there. The rich man died. Now, when the rich man died, a rich person dies, you get more than two mourners. You can hire a whole slew of mourners, professional mourners, moaning and wailing and crying. And there's, there's music, and there's this huge funeral over the deceased. But you see, there's a major difference in where these two people go. Where one is being burned, forgotten about, and maybe people are thinking, we're relieved of that old wretch who's been at our gate. The rich guy dies, and we're going to really miss the, the old rich guy. Let's have a big celebration. And whereas one was carried away to Abraham's bosom, this guy was buried. Note the first part of verse 23. Where did the rich guy wake up? In Hades. Hades. It's a Greek word. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew sheol, the Old Testament, more or less the, the, the equal to it. It means to be six feet under. It means a place of the dead. The place of the dead. The rich guy, with all of his splendor in life, woke up in the place of the dead, contrary to where Lazarus woke up. In Hades... By the way, I think Hades here, Jesus is just using it as an equivalent to hell. Although technically the two are different. And I'll tell you about that difference in just a second. But Jesus is essentially saying in hell, he lifted up his eyes. I find that interesting. I've got eyes bracketed in my Bible. He lifted up his eyes. So if we're going to take something from this, there's many things we can take. You have eyes in Hades. Eyes. Maybe you don't have them when Hades is cast into, into the lake of fire, but in Hades, the abode of the wicked dead, the place where all the wicked go when they die. You can see. There's eyesight. I've imagined in the past when someone's in hell, who's to say we can see? 
Who's to say we can hear? Who's to say we can taste? Who's to say we can talk? We don't know. Hell is called the blackest of darkness, and yet there's fires. Don't fires light up the blackest of darkness? They might, but if you don't have eyes to see, you don't see the light. What could be more more, um, terrifying than being blind and not knowing where you are, not being led by someone you love, not being cared for, hearing the screams, if in fact you can hear, But we see an awareness of this man. Now, by the way, Hades is a place, if we were to go, say, to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll just summarize it for you. Um, In Revelation 20, the context is Jesus returns to the earth in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, the return of Jesus, he comes with his saints, his raptured saints. He comes back to an earth where there are sheep and goats, there are believers and unbelievers who have lived through the seven-year tribulation. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, that's the believers from the unbelievers, and he begins to reign on the earth for 1,000 years as the king, fulfilling all the covenants that have yet to be fulfilled. He's the king of the world. He is the king of the earth. We, as his previously deceased people who went to heaven and were with him and came back with him in his second coming, we rule on this earth with him. Those who didn't die in the tribulation will have babies and will populate the millennium over the 1,000-year time period. At the end of the thousand years, there will be a resurrection, another resurrection, this time of the wicked dead. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, speaks of death, which is a thing that happens, and Hades, which is a place. At the end of the thousand years, this place, death and Hades, is thrown into the lake of fire. And so Hades is this Technically, theoretically, from the Bible, if we put these together, is the place where the wicked go, who do not receive Christ, who did not believe God from the Old Testament times. They go to the place called Hades, and they sit there. And later they await, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, for their abode in the wickedness of their ways in Hades to be cast into the fiery lake. But let's see what it's like in Hades. Let's see if that's no big deal. That little holding place, you know, where all the rock stars go. You know, you hear of rock star heaven. I wish rock stars had a heaven. I really do. I mean, I like a lot of their music, but uh, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, uh, there's no rock star heaven. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Note this, being in torment. So there's the first word we see, being in torment. Hades is a place of torment. And he saw with his eyes Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom or at his side. So he sees this. Now, if he depicts the Pharisees, what you'll see he does not do is say, hey, what am I doing here? It appears that immediately he knows why he's there and will not make an argument as to how someone needs to get him out. But he sees this far away, wherever it is he's able to see with the eyes he's been given, he sees Abraham. And he sees Lazarus. He knows Lazarus by name. He saw him every day coming into his gate. Verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham. All Jews called Abraham father. He is the father of the Hebrew people. Uh, this depicts this rich man as being a Jew. So, and that's going to be important because Jews are supposed to know Abraham. They're supposed to not only know Abraham, but he is supposed to be their hero. Why? Because Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. That's salvation. Paul goes through it in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. 
The life of Abraham, Abraham simply believed God. How do people in the Old Testament go to be with Jesus? They believe God. How do people in the New Testament and afterward come to know Jesus or come to go to heaven? They believe God. It's the same. That's what faith is. It's to believe. To believe, but it's not just believing something. Even atheists believe something. It's the object of our faith that saves us. We believe God. We know more specifically from New Testament times that God is Jesus Christ. But he calls him Father Abraham, far away. Father Abraham, have mercy on me, which is strange that he would call for mercy because that's the very thing he did not offer on earth. Imagine walking through gates every day with so much money that you can dress yourself the way he dressed, see someone so poor and wretched like Lazarus sitting at the gate and pay no attention. To see that person is just part of the landscape. Lazarus' very existence at the gate cries out for, hey, rich guy, can you spare some change? Do you have some mercy within you? Can you give me something? Just anything. Can you collect the crumbs from your table, send one of your servants out? I'll eat the crumbs. That's all I want. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just longing for the crumbs. And now here's this man when the tables have turned. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Don't you think that's just the the height of hypocrisy, to not give mercy and yet to ask for it? Isn't God the God of mercy? Won't God give him mercy? Doesn't God love all? Folks, make sure you know this. The mercy that God grants is only while you live. You will only receive the mercy of God while you draw breath on this side of glory. That's it. If you don't receive Christ when you die, there is no mercy left. It ends there. People today may say, well, this offends my sensibilities. It's supposed to. The doctrine of hell is spoken of throughout the New Testament. It's spoken of in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks of it more times than he does of heaven, far more. I don't know the percentage, but it's far more. So if we believe in heaven, we've got to believe in hell. If you're listening to people out there like Rob Bell, who wrote his nice little book called Love Wins. Yeah, Love Wins. But you don't, Rob. Who says there is no hell. Many people say there is no hell. And some that would go so far as to say there is a hell would say it has a time limit. Once you're done there, you get to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the duration of hell in the Bible is said to be forever. I've had one guy. I heard one guy, he didn't come to me, say, but I heard one guy who said, uh, I don't believe that. I believe that heaven is eternal, but, but hell is, has, has an, a shelf life. And the man said, well, look, the words that depict hell and heaven are the same words, everlasting and eternal. They're the same Greek word. It's the same word, by the way, that depicts God. We know God's eternal. Heaven is eternal. So if hell isn't eternal, neither is heaven. If hell is, isn't eternal, then neither is heaven and neither is God. That's the word that's used. See, God didn't negotiate with us. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you some difficult doctrines and, and uh, you get the chance to just tweak those and modify them as you see fit. We accept it all or we don't accept any. We either believe God or we don't. And Jesus is telling us lovingly, this man without mercy on the earth, without any, any and he had so much to give to this poor guy, gave none. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Know what he does. And send Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus. 
in the arms of Abraham as, some, as his own servant. We might say that in hell, there still is no repentance. Why does hell endure for eternity? Probably because those there continue to sin. Send Lazarus. Looks like you got a great servant. I know that guy. Send him here so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So we saw back over here, it was, he was in torment. So now he's in agony and there's a flame. So Hades, although it is just the holding cell, waiting for the lake of fire, it's tormenting. It's full of agony and there's a flame. There's a fire there. I, um, I heard a preacher uh, reaffirm this for me so I was glad because I have noticed in my life I spend far more time thinking about hell than I ever have every day I just I I can't get hell out of my mind Um, it's scary it's just frightening and and I know people that are there and so do you the people that we don't want to we don't want to believe are there but they're there and we know people that are going there and I am amazed as are you that when we share the gospel with them when we try to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. When we lovingly tell them the truth, they just don't care. They know they're going to die, but they've decided all we're going to do is rot in the ground or I'm going to go, I'm, a, I'm not a bad person, I'm going to somewhere in the sky and it's all going to be good, but they have nothing to base this on. And I'm amazed that they just, they're just not scared. I'll ask this rhetorically, but how many of you heard a sermon on hell and it scared you into heaven? It scared you into your salvation? That's not so bad, but... We, we believe in Jesus not to avoid hell, but because we love God. We love Jesus. But I think, how bad hell must be. I mean, think of your, your worst nightmare. Think, just forget your nightmare. Just take, the, take a time in your life when you were in more pain and agony, maybe physical, maybe mental, maybe both. You lost someone you loved. Uh, maybe you, you had... Uh, Maybe it was right there in the midst of giving birth, ladies. I mean, because that's, that's, I'm told, the worst pain ever. And those of us who have given birth to kidney stones, we can relate a little bit. And that is, for me, as you know, that's the worst pain possible. That is what scares me to death. For me, a kidney stone can take anywhere from an hour to 12 hours to pass from the boulder, you know, it's this big, from my kidneys down the ureter and drop under my bladder. That can, and I don't know how long it's going to take and I can't sit still. I, I'm insane. You can't sleep. You can't just lay down and go, oh, I think I'll rest this out. You can't. It's just, God, either deliver the, the stone or kill me, please. And I think, if that's hell, I mean, at least even if I know it's going to be a 12-hour um, delivery for me on that, I know it's going to come out. And I know if it doesn't, my wife can take me to the doctor. They can just either put me to sleep or, or cut it out. I'm going to be relieved. I'm going to be. But hell, no. Imagine how tired you can be. Just exhausted with, with a long day, two days. Maybe you're up all night. Maybe you're raising little kids and you haven't slept. You are beside yourself in agony. And on top of that, you're getting the flu. Your head hurts. Your nose is all stopped up. Your body aches. You're sweating there's children screaming. A Calgon bath is not going to help you. 
You are in absolute torment, folks. That's hell, but it never goes away. And that might be a good day. When I go to bed at night, every night my, my head hits the pillow. My first words, just without even thinking about it, are, thank you, Lord. My air conditioning is on. My sheets are clean. My head hit the pillow. I'm going to rest. Whatever day I had is now over. I'm going to sleep. That's not in hell. You'll never rest. You will never feel good. You will never have a good day. Never, ever. This man had his heaven on earth with his clothing and his money. And when he died, it was gone. And in agony, he's in this flame. Wanting that servant not to come bail him out. He knows he can't get out. Just send him to drop some water on my tongue. But the problem with that is there can be no relief in hell. None. That's what it is. And we're given bodies, we, those who are there, are given bodies that can endure it. First Thessal- I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 speaks of the destruction in hell as lasting over the course of eternity. Their destruction will be eternal. Being destroyed over the course of eternity. Being destroyed doesn't sound good. It doesn't just sound like an absence of God. It doesn't just sound like being all alone and not knowing where to go in hell. It sounds like a fiery torment of the worst possible kind that is beyond our minds. And that's where he is. Can I just get a drop of water? But Abraham said in verse 25, child, he doesn't call him son. Child, you, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. That doesn't mean that if you're rich, you're going to hell. And if you're poor, you're going to heaven. That's not what it's saying at all. But if you are wealthy, and by the way, everyone in this room is wealthy. If you live in this day, you are wealthy. You may not be as wealthy as others, but you are wealthy. You have money. You have reliable transportation, or maybe unreliable transportation, but you've got money. We are responsible for that money. We are responsible to see a Lazarus in our own vision. Someone or something, and by the way, I'm not talking about people that hang out at the corner with the sign up. That's not in view here. People that are truly in need, that need it, you have it to give, but you don't want to give it because you want to keep it for yourself. The man is in hell, not because he was wealthy, but because he was given gifts from God and he spent them only on himself. Hosea 6, 6, the prophet says, God is speaking to the prophet, he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy. The man never showed mercy. If he was a good Jew, who knew, he knew who Abraham was. He knew the prophets where God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And that means people come to worship all the time in the Old Testament. They would bring their sacrifice. They would bring their animals. They would give of their possessions. And God is saying, you're just turning, it's like giving your 10%. It's like writing a check, drop it in the box. Writing your checks, drop it in the box. How much money can I give? More money, more money, more money. If it's just a gift, if it's just you giving it without a heart for God and the glory of God, God is desiring mercy. Not just a check. So the man is in agony, not because he was wealthy, but because he gave nothing of what God gave him. He showed no faith whatsoever. And Lazarus, well, we don't have a doctrine here of 
of salvation by faith in Christ alone. But we get what's going on. It never is it said, Lazarus is here because he believed. But we know that no one is with Abraham, that is with God, when they die, unless they lived by faith. No one. Lazarus at this gate each day was apparently there saying, Lord, I'm hungry, I'm hurting, I'm sick. Maybe this guy can help me. And God's answer is, I appreciate your optimism, son, but he's not going to, and you're going to die like this. And he did. And that's the way some of us will. God doesn't promise our physical bodies anything. Don't listen to those, those uh, um, false teachers that tell you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Tell that to the people who are dying of cancer, who followed Christ and served him faithfully. Tell that to the, to the martyrs of old who were burned alive for simply believing in God, for translating the Bible into the vernacular of the day. God doesn't bless those with a bunch of money. That's how he blesses them. That's why I love you. He doesn't take those who are poor and say, I hate you. Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6, blessed are the poor. In Matthew's gospel, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek. Here it's just blessed are the poor, those who have nothing. Blessed are you. Why? Well, look at Lazarus. I'd call him blessed. The man had faith, and he wasn't in agony. And as Abraham continued to answer the man in verse 26, he said, besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross from there to us. This forever chasm, this barrier. We don't know what it looks like. It's a parable. It's probably just imagery. We don't know. We can't say from this necessarily that when we go, the inhabitants of hell are going to see the inhabitants of heaven and vice versa. I hope not. I won't see the people I love being in torment. But if that's what God has anointed or appointed, I should say, for us, so be it. It's going to be great one way or the other. But to prove the point, that's what he's saying. One is fixed, and although he wants Lazarus to come from there to him, and he may want to go from there to, to Lazarus, to Abraham, God is saying it can't happen. In other words, this, folks. Death is final. There is no getting out of where you go after death. There is no purgatory the catholic church has foisted that upon their people for centuries and it runs and fuels the entire system of roman catholicism scare people to death have them give money for their own souls and for the souls of people they love to bring them out it fuels the system but it's not in the bible it's not even in second maccabees where they take it from it's just an implied verse so if you think that, well, I can live my life as I want, serve a little time in purgatory, and then get out, even if it's bad, at least in eternity, I'm going to be in heaven. You're not. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. When we die, it's over. You have either received Jesus Christ in your salvation, or you have not. There's no getting out of the place where you are. Those in paradise will not want to get out. Those in Hades will do anything to get out. But there's a barrier, a great chasm no one can cross it. Verse 27. The rich man, in his final plea, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Him being Lazarus. Send him to my father's house. Finally, this man has some benevolence. Something about him that's, that's thinking of someone other than him. I beg you, Father, 
that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place, once again, of torment. So it appears that these five brothers may have lived with the rich man who's dead, and they all knew who Lazarus was. Perhaps that's why he's named in the parable. Because if the rich man wants him to resurrect from the grave, they're going to need to have known him and known that he died. For him to be back to life and say, no, I'm back to life. Where's all your stores? They're all gone. They're going to need to recognize him. And the only way they're going to be able to recognize him is if he is glorified and he still looks like Lazarus. So it's a pretty good idea if you would, Father. If I can't get out, if I can't get a drop of cold water, please send Lazarus. If he can't break this barrier, send him back home and tell my brothers, I don't want them coming here with me. I tried to share with a young man one time uh, this passage um, and I was sharing Christ with him. He was dating my little, my little sister, my little, my little sister. I have two sisters, both are little, but my, my littlest sister. And, and uh, he wasn't a Christian, and I was explaining to him. And he said, well, if what you're saying is true, then my dad is in hell. He said, when I die, I only want to be with my dad. And I thought, wow. Um, no, you don't. I didn't prevail. Maybe God has since then. It's been multiple years since that. But this man is thinking, I don't want them. He's saying, I don't want my brothers to come here and keep me company. I want them. If you'll send Lazarus back from the dead, they'll recognize him and they'll say, wow, something happened. They'll believe and not come here. You'd think Abraham would say, good idea. But Abraham, in verse 29, said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they have Elijah through Malachi, books that even some Christians never read. Sad, isn't it? In other words, they have the scriptures. Let them hear them. That word for hear is the Greek word akuo. It's where we get the word acoustic. Let them hear them. Faith comes by what, folks? By hearing. Hearing the word of God. You don't have to see the word of God. You don't have to see a miracle. Hear the word of God. And he's saying, no, I've got a better plan. Not sending Lazarus back. They have the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Let them hear those Scriptures. As if the rich guy could do anything now about that. But he said, no, Father. As if to say, no, they don't read the Bible. They're never going to read the Bible. No one's ever going to tell them to read the Bible. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So you see, him using the word repent means he knows they need to repent. He knows he should have repented. Repentance. That's what Jesus is trying to bring the Pharisees to. That's what Jesus tries to bring all those who don't believe to repentance. Change your mind. Change your mind about what you think if you don't believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord. Change your mind. And he's saying, look, there's no way they're going to read this, but if you send someone back from the dead, they will repent. Folks, don't believe that. Don't believe that God needs to give you the ability to perform miracles to, uh, to cause people to believe. I mean, Jesus did the, the miracle of miracles, did he not? They watched him die. They, they laughed at him at the foot of the cross, and he was resurrected, and they still didn't believe. Some did. The greatest of all miracles still caused the Pharisees in that day to say, we're going to tell everybody, according to Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, that somebody stole his body. Even though they knew he was resurrected. They knew it. We're going to lie about that. 
Let them hear the prophets. No, Father Abraham, it won't happen that way. Verse 31. But Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. No scripture. If you don't believe scripture, you are beyond help. Did you hear what I just said? If you don't believe and receive the word of God, this book in my hand, there is no hope for you. There is no other way of salvation than what is revealed to us in the Bible. That's why we know God gave it to us without any errors, infallible and inerrant. God would never give us a book with lies. We are called to repent. We are called to repent, turn away from our sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. There is no Lord Jesus Christ to believe in at this point in this parable. What must they believe? Moses spoke of the Messiah who was coming. In Deuteronomy, a prophet like me is coming. The prophets of the old spoke of the renewal of Israel, spoke of the coming Messiah. Believe God, at the very least, before Christ got here, believe God that he is going to redeem Israel. Believe him. Whatever God says, believe him. Listen to me, folks. Whatever the word of God says, in whatever the pages say, from Genesis 1 and the six-day creation to the resurrection of our Lord, believe it. It's not up for negotiation. If you say, no, I don't believe it, I have no hope to give you. We cannot cherry-pick from God's word. Not a single word of it. This man didn't believe it. The rich man didn't believe the word of God. He believed his money made him blessed. He believed he didn't need to show mercy. There was no fruit to his salvation because he had no salvation. Turn over if you would. Um, hold your place in Luke. I'm going to go to 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. Let's see. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 1 John. If you're in 2 John, you've probably gone too far. 1 John 3.17. And this just depicts the, old, the, the rich man so perfectly. 1 John 3.17. The apostle John, who, who himself laid at Jesus' side, he says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You have what the poor need and you will not give it away. You can say you're a Christian all you want, but your works or lack thereof reveal the rotten fruit of your salvation, the lack of salvation. Turn back to the left, the book of James, chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. James asks, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. This man did not believe God. He may have thought he did, he may have said, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in the scriptures. But when you don't follow, when you don't believe them, when you reject them, 
When you show no mercy to those in need, God is a God of mercy. When you don't act like God, you're not of God. That's why he was suffering eternally in Hades. And again, that last phrase back in in Luke. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You know, it's interesting that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, didn't he? That's what he says in Matthew 5, 17. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. What the law says, I fulfill. I'm the fulfillment of it. Pharisees didn't buy into that. Yet Jesus did. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus said over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. And so by not believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, they're certainly not going to believe when he himself is resurrected from the grave, to which they rejected. Folks, when we die, we will go to one of two places. We will either go to be with God forever and our Lord Jesus Christ, or we will not. There is no interim And yet there's an interim time through which we are with Jesus right now. Those who are in Christ who died, they're with Jesus. They get their bodies when he returns. Glorified bodies. The wicked dead are in Hades. But they're just going to be dumped in the lake of fire. We get our new bodies and live on the new earth eternally with God. Ruling with Jesus. There's only one of two places you can go. In the New Testament dispensation, the way that we ensure our salvation, the way that we ensure that we can know that we're going to be with Jesus when we die, the moment we die, no matter what happens to our our bodies, is to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, that He and only He saves you from your sins, which we have all committed, which brings us death, and that by believing in Him without works, By simply trusting Him, we will be saved. That salvation begins the moment you believe it. You already have eternal life, according to John 5, 24. We have eternal life right now if we're in Christ. Oh, the body's going to die, so what? Who cares? Not worried about that. It's going. I can't do anything to to keep it from happening. I don't know how it's going to happen. I hope it doesn't hurt, but whatever. I'm going to slip out and I'm going to wake up in the arms of God. And if not, I'm going to wake up and rock and roll heaven. I'm going to wake up with a bunch of perverts. I'm going to wake up with a bunch of people who hated God, and many of which who thought they knew God. Some of the nicest people on the planet today will be in hell. Some of the nicest, kindest people you know will be in hell for eternity. Why, Lance? Because though they were nice... They did not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't be nice enough to wipe out your sins. We are sinners. Jesus came to live the life we could not. If we will identify ourselves with him by faith, through faith, his victory is ours. You've heard me say it a hundred times. I'll say it again. When we cheer on our favorite teams, we say, yes, we won. We won. I watched the University of Texas game last night play Alabama, and they won. And the whole student body, at least that was there in Alabama, we won, we won, you know, we won. They won on the field. You didn't, but you're participating in their win. You get the joy of their win when you go to school there, when you're a fan, you wear a hat, a University of Texas hat last night. UT, we won. 
Folks, our identification, our identification with Christ is not a college team. He won. Our identifying feature is faith in the victor. We win because he won. If you are not in him, you lose. He won. His victory is for his people, those who identify with him through faith alone. But faith alone produces the works that the rich man could not, would not. What about you? You throw your hand in the air when somebody says, I are a Christian. Yep, that's me. What evidence in their life is there to convict you if that were a crime of being a Christian? What evidence is there in your life to convict you of that crime if in fact it was a crime to be a Christian? Is there any fruit? Bear it. God has given us a Lazarus. God has given us what we need. God has given us his blessing to bless others. What are you doing with it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the rich men and Lazarus. Thank you for the lessons to be be soaked in. I pray for everyone here. I, I pray for those I know and I love, those that I don't know, who do not know Christ. As I think of hell and I think of their fate, may it soften our hearts to them, Lord. May we look at them with great terror and fear for their lives, for their eternal souls. Even if they mock us, may we give them the gospel of love. May that be the fruit that flows from our faith, the love of God. May it manifest itself in mercy and forgiveness and grace and giving of what we have. We don't do it to be saved, Lord. May we do it because we're saved. In Jesus' name we pray. May the Lord God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.